You're listening to The Yoga Room with Mark Stevens, a place for exploring evocative and provocative ideas and conversations about yoga, life, myth, science, and making the world a better place for all. Welcome back to The Yoga Room. Matters of touch, of interaction, and sexuality in yoga and life more generally are just as surely ancient as they are altogether salient here in the present moment. And while they are very much at the forefront of many conversations about yoga today, their storied history is altogether uneven and filled with a variety of rules, practices, admonitions, and more. For the most part, I'll suggest that the ancient to modern yoga literature says pitifully little about these topics. And for some, the conversation begins and ends with a single word, which is brahmacharya, which has about as many translations, transliterations, and interpretations as there are words found in the entire corpus of the Vedas. Um, And indeed, today especially, we see a variety of interpretations of a concept that in its earliest meanings, we gather its literal definition was abundantly clear, simply celibacy. And with this, the practice of a brahmacharyan was one of practicing where all such energies are sublimated as part of a larger path of opening to spiritual life, spiritual being, and being with the one, with God, with Brahma, brahmacharya. And so for many, we find in the yoga realm, there has been for always and ever a simple solution to every question of maybe not so simple, but no less a seemingly simple response to the question of of things like sexual desire and other types of desire, which is that, well, in a certain way, desire is bad. And such behaviors that arise from them, including sexual behavior, simply should be renounced, sublimated in some shape, form, or fashion. Depending on the tradition, depending on the lineage, we find a variety of ways that this matter of human experience is addressed. And for some, it is a very strict set of rules that are put forth. Thou shall not, essentially. If one wishes to you know, enter the gates, if one wishes to have transcendence, jivang mukti, liberation, or whatever else the purposes, the aims of the overall practice are, the idea is that this is not a part of it. Or you might, at the very most, use these energies in a way to better understand your tendencies, your behaviors as a tool for reflecting in your life and as a part of what we might call what's certainly Patanjali called Zvadhyaya, self-study. We find a variety of sort of moral precepts in yoga and very much early on connected to religious traditions in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. And these give us a set of rules very much about human interaction, about human relationship. And they're somewhat codified, summarized in the Yoga Sutra Patanjali in chapter two uh, under uh, Yama. Uh, yama this uh, to, to contain, in this case, a sort of a moral container. And we're given some rather precious concepts there that are drawn largely from Buddhism at the time. One of them is ahimsa, not hurting. A, a really beautiful concept. I like to suggest that we can bring forth fruitfully into every aspect of our lives today. Every aspect of our lives today. And that can very much influence, I would hope, how we interact with one another. Another key concept there, satya, truth. So not only to thine own self be true, but perhaps, well, can you tell the truth to your friends, to your coworkers, to say your partners, your partner? So truth, not hurting, not being covetous, uh, not taking from people that in ways that, that they aren't allowing you to take uh, or to share. These fundamental concepts at the heart of yoga 
For some, it is all that is said, and for some, well, it is enough that is said to to, to only say that. But then we come to some of the deeper realities of the way that this manifests in our world. By the way, before we get to the modern world, we also come through a period of practice starting in the medieval period around the 5th century and really having its heyday in the 10th and 11th centuries and resurfacing in the early 20th century, but in very, I would suggest, distorted ways, uh, uh, something called Tantra. And Tantra today in the popular parlance sort of immediately evokes the notion of some kind of sexual interaction. Looking at that literature of Tantra, one will find an equally rich literature there as one will find in all of the literature of yoga, a diversity of views, a diversity of perspectives, and ones in which many will attempt to suggest that there was always this sense of honor, of relationship of one to the other. And while that is there in some of the Tantric literature, the ancient Tantric literature, I will suggest that is, um, one will also find rather disturbing ideas uh, altogether disturbing ideas that, that suggest, uh, particularly with respect to the interactions between men and women, that that that, that very much uh, prescribe highly exploitative kinds of interaction. This is an underlying current that 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 we see a thread, a sutra, if you will, from that period forward that tends to infect many aspects of uh, certain types of ideas in yoga especially sort of the idea that the teacher is the teacher's way or the highway is the guru's way or no way. And whatever that guru or teacher wishes is what one shall experience. Now we come into, let's say the current moment, the mod, the altogether modern world as in the contemporary world. And we also had a variety of other things happen in the last couple of generations that would have been altogether lost on most of the movements of yoga from their inception, including, let's call it second wave feminism, civil rights movements, and other movements that have led to a sense of not only empowerment, but of right, and a sense of, of, of rightfulness in every aspect of life and matters of social equality and social justice that tend to now influence every aspect of our lives in a variety of ways. We also live in a world in which we have a growing preponderance of influences in our cultural lives through the internet and other means in which we have, let's say, the primary source of sex education today being pornography, which is generally male-created, male-oriented, and often altogether violent, or certainly not exactly what one might wish for their own children to most absorb or for their best friends to most absorb as the codes, as the ideas for how one might interact with another human being in those aspects of our lives that can be most intense, most intimate, most vulnerable, most important, most beautiful, but again, sometimes altogether problematic. In getting at these kinds of questions, there are a variety of ways one might. One way I try to get at these kinds of questions is through conversation. And there are two people I'm really excited to have here today as, a, as guests in this show, uh, both of whom have been students in my classes and my yoga teacher trainings, but we've also, I will suggest, I've also been students of theirs in a variety of ways from the very beginning. Very insightful, both of them. Jennifer Hellworth, professor of English at Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, where her focus is on the history of sexuality and medicine. And also Joshua Searle-White, professor emeritus in psychology at Allegheny College, who has also done some really interesting work, theatrical work, writing on... Um, 
these very types of questions uh, about sexuality and our interaction with one another. Joshua and Jennifer created and facilitated a course for undergraduate students at Allegheny College, which was very much about exploring sexuality, relationship, and questions of consent. That experience that they had with those undergraduates, as well as larger kinds of questions and experiences and thoughts that they've had about these various topics over time, are the focus of our conversation today. We'll be somewhat freewheeling in this conversation uh, as we dive into it all. I'm very happy to have Joshua and Jennifer here. Uh, I welcome you. Thank you. Thank you. Meadville, Pennsylvania, um, I have roots there, as in my earliest paternal ancestors settled, well, down near the junction of the Juniata and Susquehanna Rivers in 1746, coming from Scotland, fleeing Scotland after being on the losing end of the Battle of Culloden. Alexander Stevens settled there. And I visited, but I've never been to Meadville, never been to Allegheny College. And I'm just curious about the environment there, the social environment there, the natural environment there, what it's been like for you for a career of working there uh, in that academic institution, th- that community. Yeah, well, Meadville's a pretty small town in a pretty conservative county, Crawford County, and semi-rural, I'd say, close to the flyway of the Presque Isle up in Erie. So there's a lot of nice nature around here. It's kind of a, a draw for people who do sports kinds of things, hiking, fishing, hunting, all of that. And we're both from California, but I I have really enjoyed living here for the last 20 some odd years. Really liked it a lot. We have a nice community. We play in a couple of rock bands together. And, uh, you know, we we know people that we knew since our kids were little. And uh, it's a nice place to be. Yeah. The college is a small liberal arts college. And one of the benefits of working at such a institution is that um, I'm a medievalist, uh, early modernist by training, but it allowed me to do things like teach in the women, gender and sexuality studies and explore other areas such as the history of sexuality and uh, work with students in that capacity as well as in those others. I'm really fascinated by those subjects being taught at Allegheny College in particular in what you've just described as a semi-rural conservative community. One where I know there's a place, I think it's called Meadville Yoga. Uh, well, Meadville Yoga closed when the pandemic hit, but there is an, another yoga spot in Meadville, uh, which a, f- a couple of friends of ours are in charge of, and uh, we happily teach there. And yeah, yoga happens. Yeah, yoga happens. And it's, it's quite extraordinary, I think, in many ways that I will suggest that a generation ago, uh, Yoga in rural communities was very, very much the exception that today we see more of a proliferation of yoga in every kind of community, urban, rural, different types of urban, as well as different types of rural communities. And what a beautiful thing. But I always wondered just, you know, how that is different in certain communities, especially where there are also often certain types of, let's call them religious fundamentalisms that might be there or strong currents that might be there. Uh, the idea, let's just say, chanting Om Namah Shivaya Shivaya Namaha might or might not go over so well sometimes in relatively more, let's call it, well, as you did, semi-rural conservative communities where sports are largely, I think you said, fishing, hunting, and hiking. Yeah, we, you know, we worried about that when Jennifer was running uh, Meadville Yoga, 
uh, we did uh, we had chant nights periodically down at the studio and and uh, we put together a little little band and Jennifer played um, harmonium and we had a, a drummer and a, and a guitar player and I played bass and we the we had very successful chant nights and we were worried about it, it was right down on Main Street you know no, we did not have any issues at all and we one of the things you get in in Meadville in the yoga community is a real diversity of people, not just politically. I mean, you do get, you get a lot of people with giant SUVs coming to their yoga class. You also get body diversity. I mean, there's just a lot of people. There's some people who haven't seen their toes in 30 years who come to yoga uh, for all of the benefits that you know about. It's, it's really quite impressive, I think, how, and, and it's not just because of the people. It's also because I think of the studios offering themselves to a wide community and not saying you have to be young and fit in order to, uh, to practice yoga. And it's also, yeah, and it's also been actually a really, uh, for me at least, a learning experience because, you know, I, by my own admission, tend to kind of surround myself with people like with the same kinds of uh, views that I have. And when, you know, you're on the yoga mat and there's a lot of folks who have different views who come and practice with open hearts, you know, and learning to connect um, and widen my own view and uh, practicing non-judgment and all of that. So it's been a, it's really been a great experience uh, teaching yoga in this community. I would like to thank, entertain, hope that, uh, I, I think that yoga can be a beautiful part of anyone's life. And sometimes there are obstacles, unnecessary obstacles there around language, concept of what it is. When we get to the practices themselves, someone is breathing, they're feeling their body, as you say, they might be looking at or touching their toes for the first time, maybe ever in certain ways. Um, it, it seems that when we get into the practices themselves and we find ways to make them accessible with language and vibe, that the magic starts to happen. The accessibility starts to happen that just about anyone, whatever their politics, whatever their body, whatever their ideas are about the culture of it all, they find that there's something in there that can be pretty beautiful in their own personal, in their own personal lives. Yeah, absolutely. And so with this, I just wanted to then go right into, I'm really, as I was from the very first hearing this fascinated by the course that you uh, organized and facilitated at Allegheny College. What happened when you started to have these conversations with these students about these matters of sexuality and relationship and consent, college students? Yeah, who can remember how it all started? It was a crazy idea. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, uh, well, one thing is that that over the last almost decade now, I've been doing a lot of. Um, you know, as I was approaching retirement and going into retirement, you know, these questions around sexuality and relationships have, have preoccupied me for, for a long time, but I never made them uh, a part of my professional life so much. And so I've been able to do that more. And um, I did a lot of uh, study of consent with Betty Martin, who's a, a well-known uh, sex educator. And, uh, you know, it just is so clear to me that, that, that people of any age really struggle with questions of relationship and how do you talk about things that are difficult and how do you talk about sex at all in a culture that was founded by the Puritans where you've got this, you know, dual approach to sexuality, one part of which is utter fear and the other, which is utter fascination. 
Um, and so, and of course, Jennifer has studied sexuality in academic terms for a long time. And so I, I do not remember the exact moment when we decided to do this, but we floated the idea a number of years ago and offered it the first time as a kind of a once a week seminar style class. And it was that time, the, the, the first time it was ever taught, we had kind of the early adopters. And so these people, these students were really eager to get in there and they were, they were ready to have a place, I think, where they could talk about issues that were really central to their lives in a public forum with grownups present so that it wasn't just them sitting in a dorm room, but they actually had a chance to kind of air them. And they, they took that chance, uh, that opportunity really well. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I've been um, at the college, we have first year, second year seminars. And so when a first a student arrives, they're in a FS, a first year seminar with the person who is their advisor until they declare a major. And I re- regularly taught a class on modern sexualities, which was, you know, uh, a great way to talk about the different uh, ways in, you know, both um, kind of the history of how we think about sexuality and also the diversity of sexuality. So very much in, a, in an academic kind of mode. But it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that uh, a lot of the students who showed up in that class were kind of working through their own sexual identities and um, working, you know, thinking about ways of coming out to parents or how they connect with other people. And so that was also kind of part of that, that it seemed like there was a real um, need and desire on the part of the students to have kind of more d- deeper conversations that were more formative rather than just, you know, um, scholarly. And in those courses, those seminars that you were teaching, did you have uh, like breakout groups, uh, study sections that met with smaller or was it smaller, you know, groupings of the students in the classes or was it always all together? I was curious about the size of the groups and the kinds of conversations that might have happened just there in those courses there before you then later developed this other course to focus on all of this. Yeah, these these classes were always fifteen student, about fifteen students or fewer. So we were always all together, although they themselves kind of you know clustered. I think the beauty of small liberal arts colleges classes of 15, that you had that kind of quality of interaction that one can get in that relatively small size of a group and small size group where people feel a little bit more comfortable, I think, in talking about feelings and views at a more personal level. Yeah. Well, certainly that was the case um, when we've offered the course, we've had probably between 18 and 20 or so, 22 students. And um because they're self-selected, I mean, we did have an occasional person who was just just in need for those couple of extra credits who ended up in the class somewhat by accident. Um, but uh, I was really sort of surprised at how willing they were to open up and talk about some pretty intimate and sensitive issues. And, um, and it kind of gave me hope for the future of uh, uh, hum- humankind, right? That, you know, the students were trying to think through things thoughtfully and were willing to kind of change their view of what they learned, uh, you know, from parents, from uh, other, you know, from institutions, from pornography, um, and maybe shift 
shift their view to be kind of more centered on something that was more aligned with their own compass. Come to be in connection with another human being, including in the most intimate ways, but in a variety of ways, and to have that feel comfortable. Uh, Those are some of the biggest topics of our lives. And there's often not a space for us to have those conversations. Those conversations don't happen in yoga, yoga classes. They might happen in some workshops, but those are few and far between. Um, yeah, that was the explicit intention of, of the course that we developed. And and we the first time we taught it, well, and the second time too, we, you know, we, we did it at night, we did it in a different room, we, you know, we did it where nobody could see in the windows, you know, we set it aside from the regular academic world as much as we could. And our view was that it was kind of, a hybrid of academic and sort of student services. The student services people are the ones who, who, um, who help, uh, you know, the students kind of get the, the people who work in the, in the residence halls and, and things like that. And just sort of say, this is really about grounding what we're talking about in your real lives in a way you might not in your regular classes. And, uh, and the thing about the, the young people, I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, but it, it's a tough world to navigate questions of consent and sexuality right now, because there's, as there always is, but I mean, there's the orthodoxy that's grown up uh, through our Puritan upbringing and the, the kind of religious traditions of the country. And then there's the kind of the backlash against the misuse of power and the misuse of sexuality that's happened for millennia. And so the students are really caught in this sort of tidal set of tidal waves of like, what should I be thinking? Who should I be? What do I really want? What does it even mean to want something? And that um, that's kind of what we were hoping that in this course they would be able to develop a sense of their own sexual ethics, really, and, and be able to say it, say it. And we had them practice talking to each other and talking to us about who they are, what are their values, with, with as little kind of trying to tell them what to think as possible. You know, that was our idea. Yeah. It's interesting you say so the orthodoxy and the backlashes uh, or backlash against it and how, you know, let's just say, uh, you know, we come out of World War II and we come into the 1950s and the, the earlier 1960s before there's a countercultural movement uh, and other movements that are really, really important, I think, to highlight as a part of all this. Um, but there's a, a kind of, uh, at least officially, at least in the mainstream of culture, if you will, the idea of, of a kind of a sexual conservatism. Uh, and I think that a lot of people, early baby boomers, uh, come into their sexuality in the early and mid-1960s with a sense of, of tremendous constraint and a sense of shame, a sense of fear, a sense of, of, inhibi- of altogether inhibition, of not, sometimes sort of self-denial. And it's also often, of course, experienced within the assumptions of what, what we might refer to as patriarchy or, let's just say, the assumptions of a sexist culture in which men take initiative and women are often on the receiving end of that initiative, rather than there being a conversation, a mutuality, uh, a qualities of, of active listening, uh, of engagement. And then and perhaps something of a reaction to this, we got a couple of different kinds of movements in the 1960s, I will suggest. One of them is, let's just call it Playboy magazine, which probably has a bigger impact than a lot of people wish to acknowledge, but it it, it, it blows the doors open on a lot of aspects of sexuality, but it also seems in some ways to fuel, fuel part of what becomes kind of a toxic masculinity and, and a sort of toxic male-dominated idea about sexuality that gets embodied in various forms of, of pornography. And at the same time, or rather, as I say, not at the same time, but a few years later, we also get the rise of second-wave feminism, which is a diverse movement 
I will suggest a diverse movement, uh, but but one no less that has a reaction in part to these sort of male dominated idea dominated ideas about everything, including sexuality. And in that, we I think we start to also see the seeds of, of a, at least a, f- a couple of different defining paths in feminism. One of which is to dissociate from sex, dissociate from sex with men, at least, that is. Uh, feminism is a theory, lesbianism is the practice, the, the practice of some of those in the radical feminist, early radical feminist movement, and others who, for whom the sense of feminism is, is, is a, entirely a sexual liberation in which it's do whatever you wish, you are empowered to do as you please as a woman or a man, and this seems to open up other sorts of, I will suggest, potential cans of worms, where now it it's both one's right to have whatever sex one might wish to have, but also one can then easily be shamed into having sex because after all, we're all free sexual beings and you should be just as willing to have sex on my wish, command, demand, or whatever it is, is, is not. And so it seems there's a bit of a hornet's nest of things that start to occur there that are still with us. And we still have the imposition of various orthodoxies, fundamentalisms that say, this is what sex should be. This is what it is not. This is what sexual identity is that's pure. And this is what is not. And this is what you need to fit yourself into. So I'm curious how these kinds of elements come to be expressed in the conversations, the expressions of feeling and experience of your students and yourselves in those uh, at night, off the grid (laughs) interactions that you had in this course. You want to start? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, these things, these, that's what I was saying, the students are, are, are caught. I mean, one good example is we started off the course with a, uh, an Atlantic article uh, called about the sex recession and how there's apparently a sex recession that, you know, this generation is having a lot less sex than previous generations. And even the presumption that there is a certain amount of sex that ought to be having and that people ought to be having and now they're having less is itself a kind of a value judgment. And the students feel that. They just feel, I think, judged at every moment. I mean, this is, and this is not about just about sexuality. There's climate change, there's racism, there's the the self-scrutiny that this generation, at least of college students that we encounter, uh, are engaging in. It's it's huge. And the, the idea that every move you make could have terrible consequences. You could say something wrong. You could be castigated for being, uh, you know, racist or sexist or patriarchal or, you know, hegemonist or whatever it is that, you know, and these are, these are real things. I mean, it's not like this is a fantasy that, but they, they feel under scrutiny. And so the question is, is there a way that, that they can harmonize their own sense of who they are with, um, being able to engage in productive ways with, with, other students. Yeah. And I'd say on top of that, you know, and uh, I mean, this is no surprise with the social media and, you know, cell phones and everything at their fingertips and so many ways to distract um, uh, themselves, ourselves. uh, It's, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a big ask to ask them to really sit with examining and exploring what they really want. You know, what is it that they actually desire? 
and they're kind of in a swirl of all the things that Josh mentioned, in addition to being, you know, 18 to 22 year olds, um, wanting to be accepted, uh, looking externally for, you know, their own worth. And a lot of times I think on the campus that comes in the form of desirability or, you know, so we heard more than once from women in the class. Well, if I don't, and again, this goes back to the, uh, you know, the permit, the somebody giving permission and, you know, guarding them being the guardians of the gate. Um, if, if I don't have sex with this person, then they'll just go find somebody else. Right. And so that this idea that, uh, they their value or their lovability is also hinges upon their sexual behaviors. Yeah. What they're willing to do. I mean, yeah. you, you mentioned earlier, uh, the, um, the show that just went up, uh, it, it's not all about sex or is it, uh, that I wrote. And there's one part of that show that came directly out of a, an interaction in class. Um, and, uh, I'm pretty proud of it, so I'll just mention it. But it, there's this one student who taught, who, who told this story, uh, Jennifer will correct me on the details if I get them wrong, but she was basically saying, you know, I don't really like to have sex, but if I drink, then I will. And, you know, everybody kind of knows that all you have to do is get me drunk and then I'll have sex with you. And then I get to have a certain kind of currency among my peers. And so in this show, there's a song about, you know, where the two actors, one who doesn't want to have sex, but when they drink, then they can. And the other one who wants to have sex, but is too shy. So when they drink, they can. And, you know, it's just a tragedy of, 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 of disconnection from their own uh, life kind of direction. And that's, you know, this is these are adolescents. It's not surprising, but you know, it's also true of us as, as even older adults, we, we are not always connected with our own sense of who we are either and, and kind of lose track of that compass. So, so that's, that's the kind of the conversation that, that often came up in class. I wonder about how it felt for you here, listening to her in that and how you translated your feelings, your thoughts about that back out, how you then held that space with her um, in exploring that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we had a lot of those kinds of conversations of that felt, you know, heartbreaking. I mean, it, it feels heartbreaking, at least to, to me, to hear students who are, you know, struggling um, with their identities and with their behaviors and um, with their fears. And, you know, literally, uh, there were occasions where we would just, everybody would just stop and take a breath, right? Just to kind of breathe together. I mean, it sort of sounds new agey, but um, students would actually, you know, request, can we just have a moment, you know, and sit with the person. Um, and some students revealed pretty tender parts of themselves in these classes and by luck or chemistry or artfulness I don't know the 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 group um could hold hold held each other pretty kindly for the most part and uh so yeah it was nice it was not you didn't get like uh, oh, you poor person, or oh, you should do it this way, or oh, you know, what a horrible, you know, there was really a lack of evaluation of the situation. And really, the students were able to, uh, in, in that class particularly, were able to kind of hold 
you know, like you would in a yoga class, really, you hold the energy, you don't tell people, you know, you shouldn't be feeling this, you shouldn't be feeling that you just you just this is what you're feeling, you know, and, and waiting, you know, we had another moment, Jennifer may have been thinking about this, I don't know, but we had another a group doing a presentation on sex work and what that was about and the reasons people get into it. And one of the students came out in that discussion of having had to work as a sex worker to feed her family uh, when she was younger. And it was like, the, this, it wasn't about, you know, oh, you know, go you or oh, poor you at all. As students were like, wow, okay, we're going to just be with you. I, I can't imagine a better uh, moment uh, than that, where there was that kind of um, acknowledgement of the person's humanity, which was great. There are an astonishing number of undergraduate students and graduate students today who are sex workers who find that that is how they are able to survive as students. Matters of cost of education uh, are, are so, so, so much an obstacle for many people in their lives. And they make these decisions that end up being very deeply personal and moral decisions to do sex work as a way of sustaining themselves, often with unintended, unimagined emotional, psychological consequences, both amidst it and farther down the path as they come to reflect back on it. Uh, I think it's something that deserves much greater attention and focus. Rather than going there just now, I want to back up into just what you were talking about, the the emotional tenderness of the space there, of, of the feelings that people were, that your students were expressing, perhaps you were also feeling and sensing and participating in as well. Um, and how that richness of feeling and depth of feeling and vulnerability that is there is happening in a room where this is a topic of conversation, where there's, I'm imagining some sense of safety in that. That is, it's not in the throes of desire or at a party or, you know, out on a date or something else, but it's in a space where by definition, we're talking about this. We're interacting in a way that's being consciously cultivated or facilitated in a way to make it, help make it as, as comfortable as can be. And then we go to, the, to say, again, like it's a date or it's a party or interaction in a dorm or interaction of adults out in the world, whatever age. And we come to these kinds of questions or these kinds of experiences, rather. All of what you've been describing is going to still, is still, in, is still in play. It's still people with desires, ideas, senses of shame, of being shamed, of all the various things that might and that do come into play. And then it seems to come to some sort of rather, uh, um, uh, I will suggest, increasingly archaic ideas about how do we communicate about this. And so uh, uh, just over a decade ago, or maybe 15 years ago, the, the, the main focus in most of the conversation regarding consent seemed to be about helping men in particular to understand that no means no. And that after some, let's say, mixing in the culture of it all tr- is transformed into yes means yes. That it's, a, it's affirmative. And now we finally have this, for some people I will suggest, this idea, ah, oh, we've, we've arrived. We have this perfect arrangement. Yes means yes, which in certain ways gets one to a threshold where there may not have been any exploration of the deeper underlying feelings 
a sense of, as I'm gathering from what you're saying, something about mutual care of kindness, of, of, of being sensitive to another human being in a sense of, of deep appreciation of who they are, of empathy, of trying to get empathy with somebody. Um, so, and also in, in some of the articles we exchanged with each other this, in, 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 in the last week or so, last few days also, um, there's this idea emerging increasingly that we do indeed need to go further, that it's not just about some threshold. And even having had the experiences of something where you kept saying yes, 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 someone was asking you, is it okay, is it okay, is it okay? And you kept saying yes, yes, yes. It seems that even then that becomes sort of circumscribed, sort of limited to just that moment of sort of the sexual interaction and not about the larger human being in his or her or their life, Mm -hmm. but just that rather than having this more expansive sense of, I am a whole human being with a rich life. Here's another human being with a rich life. How do we interact? How do we come to interact with each other in the most wholesome way that's tender? And yet perhaps, I hope we don't entirely lose this, how might we say it? Spontaneous. That that there's some element of like, I don't know if we're completely dismissing spontaneity from the realm of human interaction now. How do we find the balance of these qualities of communication of tenderness in the real and the and I won't say that, that your seminars are not real world they are real real people but in the larger world in our interactions how do we start to make that happen well I would kind of say you know certainly one of the goals of the class was to sort of pull these things apart a little bit just like when you you know sit on a meditation cushion and you practice meditation so that when you go out into the world or when you're on the yoga mat and you practice you know, all the things that bring you calm or create space that when you go out into the world, you've had a little bit of practice at it. So you have a greater capability to do it when the rubber hits the road. And so I think we, and maybe this is a more mechanical response to your question uh, than a philosophical one, but, um, you know, we tried to create exercises where they could explore and practice these things. So I, I could let Josh describe it a little more, but, you know, we start really early on in the class with a game, a no game where they learn, where they say no, no matter what the, the, you know, they get in small groups of three and somebody says, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I, can I wash your cat? Can I spend the night at your house? Can I, right. Uh, brush your hair. And the answer from this person is always no, no, no. And then they reflect on what does it feel like to say no? And it's pretty interesting. Just to say no. Just to say no. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes even to things that you would want. So that no matter, even though they knew that it was a game and they were just supposed to say no, they still had a response of, wow, I kind of felt bad about saying no. And then that could become a larger discussion about how it's hard for them to say no. And in what kind of context is it hard for them to say no? Yeah, and, and also, I mean, the, th- the people who are asking also have to hear no, too. I mean, I would say just what Jennifer did is, and it's not surprising, it's kind of like yoga, too. Y- you know, you, I mean, I don't know. It seems to me that you can do yoga just to do yoga. Or you can do yoga as a method of, of becoming a person who causes less chaos in the world. You can do yoga so that you don't damage yourself 
in the things that you do. And I think for the things you were talking about, to get ready for the party situation where there's alcohol and there's noise and you're trying to you know, meet somebody, you have to practice. And you can't practice in those situations. You need to practice where it's calmer and quieter. And, uh, and so meditation is one, yoga is another. You need to develop internal awareness because the problem with, I mean, there, there's problems with every definition, definition of consent and every consent practice, but the problem with no means no or yes means yes is because I don't even know what I want sometimes. And if I don't know what I want in a moment because I'm not in touch enough with my feelings or because my ideas are putting up too much of a screen um, or my parents are still speaking to me in my head or my religion or whatever interactions I've had, if I don't know what my yes is and what my no is in that moment, I, no matter what I say, it's not going to be authentic. It's, my consent's not going to be real. The agreements I come to won't be real. So having to, and, th and that for the students often really does start with breathing. I mean, simply becoming aware of the feelings in their bodies when they say no, when they say yes. We do it like a little ex exercise meditation. We remember a time when you felt really alive. What did that feel like? You know, what, what does it feel like to be open to something? You know, and then later on when you are asked a question, yes or no, do you want to do something? Well, then you might have a sense of what it feels like when a yes is authentic or when a no is authentic. So you really have to start. And then again, to give a little credit to Betty Martin, who has developed a, a model called the Wheel of Consent. Uh, and, you know, she's developed a, a bunch of exercises around this where you practice in some artificial ways, really, in situations you'd never really be in in life, so that when you get into real life, you can have had the experience in your body of what it feels like to be in harmony with what's happening with you at the moment. Yeah, and so in the class, we tried to anchor these practices in, you know, in embodied practices. So sometimes it had them, you know, lining, putting themselves on a spectrum on, you know, in the room physically or, uh, you know, using cards. What do you mean by a spectrum? So say we would ask them a question. Now, how comfortable are you talking about sex with your parents? And then we have one side of the room, you know, like, so on the left side of the room is really, really comfortable and not on, the, on yeah. the right, not at all. And then students would kind of find their space, place in that. Um, and negotiate with each other to find out what, you what, know, to make what sure they're meant. in the right spectrum. Yeah. Um, or even having, you know, using cards that say, here are the things that I'd like to do and here, you know, um, and kind of putting them out, putting them on the table, you know, uh, or on the floor or wherever they, the desk, um, and, and discussing that with another person who wasn't their partner, um, just to kind of think about or imagine what that would be. What they'd like to do in terms of connecting with someone else. Yeah. And that could be, you know, cuddling on the couch, um, uh, different kinds of touch, those kinds of things. Yeah, there's a way that there's a way that, um, and again, we didn't we didn't make all this stuff up, but we've you know had trainings with other people and we've kind of adapted them. But but this idea of physicalizing thoughts, you know, like so the, the one that Jennifer's talking about, either you know here's a, an activity I might want to to do. We do it in a kind of a couple context, like oh, I'd like to hold your hand, I'd like to touch your hair. You could also do it in a non-monogamous context. If I was with you, here's what I'd want to do with other people. But there's something about having it written on a card and then owning it yes, this is what I would want. That's kind of like, whoa, it's out there in front of me rather than just keeping it in my head. It, it does help, I think, to move people into kind of a more uh, active and feeling-filled discussion. 
and even the act of having them practice asking for what they want and talking about, you know, the reflections on why it's hard for them to ask for what they want, right? And getting at that, going back to, you know, the uh, what you were saying at the beginning of, of the session here too was, you know, the idea of shame and, and guilt and um, fear of rejection. And these are not just, and, you know, as Josh said earlier, these aren't just, of course, they're young people. You know, I remember barely what it was like to be 18 to 22, but we still, we still struggle with this, even in our, let's just say, later years. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing about, uh, uh, we don't need to go down this particular rabbit hole either, because I'm sure we could talk a long time. But the, but the whole idea about it being shameful even to have a desire, that there's something wrong. You know, it, it taps into sort of lack of self worth. I don't deserve to have this kind of pleasure. I don't. You know, how could I ask for this? I'm so privileged. How could I even want the? You know, it's like, and there's a million different ways, like Jennifer was saying, that that we might not either ask for what we want or even know what we want or even be able to admit to ourselves uh, what we want because there's so much in particular shame uh, attached around it. And when you get into sexuality, of course, it's even, it's even more intense. So yeah. it's, it's a practice and it gets, it gets to one's own sense of, uh, again, self-worth pretty, pretty quickly. And just even the idea of normal, you know, normalizing these conversations a little bit. So just overall, so even the conversation to get back to a rabbit hole, we're not going to go down. Um, uh, individuals who need uh, d decide to be sex workers, um, that there's so much shame and um, uh, around, or what's the word I'm looking for in my... I mean, the sort of moral, yeah, moral. judgment. Um, we don't off we don't afford a kind of respect, even though people get paid to to rent out their bodies all the time, all the time <laughs> in different ways. If you're right? a server in a restaurant, if you're uh, you know working somewhere, you're always renting yourself out. What, what's the difference? But <laughs> yeah, so so that but that that kind of combination of of, of shame and and uh, and disempowerment. It runs a lot of what's going on, I think. Normalizing the conversation, having these kinds of these kinds of conversations more generally in our culture, finding ways to, to let's just say, step outside. I think it's a beautiful, hopefully replicable model that you create within the institution of, say, Allegheny College, where you've done this. How this can be taken out from there, or exported, replicated, shared, become a, something of a, a, a model. Again, not, there are many others out there, but how this gets out into the larger kinds of conversations that are so important to have, that's something I find really important, fascinating. would love your, your thoughts about how do we take a step, and I think it's such a beautiful work that you're doing there with important work, profound work, in that room with these students sharing as they are, as you are, how do we take that out of there, export it, if you will? Yeah, that's a tricky, it's a tricky question for me because, you know, one of the advantages we had, well, Jennifer mentioned, most of these students, I mean, they signed up for the course. So at some level, they knew what they were getting into. Although Jennifer mentioned, we had a few who just kind of ended up there because they needed the credits. They ended up being great students and getting a lot out of it, I think, but they're like deer in the headlights, like, what have I gotten myself into here? But, um, you know, these are, it's, it's very difficult to, um, to, and I don't know how to say this exactly. It's not consensual to talk with people about sex who don't want to talk about it. You know, it's it's not my business and not my my work 
to talk to people who don't want to listen or who don't want to, who are comfortable with their own lives or who are uncomfortable, but still too uncomfortable to talk to me. I mean, that's, it's not my job. And it's also, it's kind of disrespectful too. So, and yet I think this is really important stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Betty Martin, who I've mentioned several times, always talks about, you know, listen for the pull and not the push, you know, and and at the beginning of the show that, that recently went up, you know, there's a line about, you know, we have to show the audience, you have to talk about this stuff because they're so deeply uncomfortable, they're suffering. And then the actors look out of the audience and say, they don't, they don't look like they're suffering. Oh, yes, they are, you know. Uh, you know, if people find that their lives are uh, um, not fulfilled in a certain way, they might turn to, oh, okay, you know, as they do in the self-help world, is there some way I can get some help here? But but for us to sort of say, here's here's how we think you ought to live, or at least we really ought to normalize the discussions. Um, there's no other way to do that than just to do it in your own life. In, for me, I think, and and that's part of the issue around uh, sexuality in general is that people are not they're not open. They don't talk about the things that they um, that are really real for them. Even among my friend group, there's a few that I can talk about these issues with, and many that I can't. Um, and I don't have anything to do with that except to be open myself to the degree I'm willing to risk it. I don't know. We haven't talked about this particularly. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it is, uh, for that reason, it's complicated. And also, um, it's kind of, uh, uh, on one practical level, it's kind of a hard class to teach. You have to be willing to be vulnerable and uncomfortable. We looked at each other several <laughs> times, times and said, at the end of a class session, said, we, we can never do this again. Yeah. Are we, is this the night we're going to, is this the day we're going to get sued? So, um, <laughs> And, um, and of course, you know, and the students themselves would say, oh, gosh, you know, we really, I'm sorry, we're not talking about these things earlier uh, in middle school and different, you know, different, under, of different levels. Um, then, of course, that's not in the realm of uh, any time soon. But there are, a, there are a lot of sex educators out there, um, especially in the podcast world. Uh, there is one, the pleasure mechanics, uh, a couple who um, have a podcast speaking of sex. Uh, they have a, a, a website and they have a huge number of resources for just thinking about these things in different ways, even, you know, in terms of especially of the embodiment elements. So kind of thinking of what, you know, how do you feel when or how do you feel with this, or you know, how, how do you stay uh, connected to uh, emotions and feelings and sensations, and and you know, oriented around sexuality specifically, but pleasure more broadly, and also just even the um, the work on pleasure activism, uh, the the book we you know use some of that in our class, and um, and so. But it's it's finding the resources that are helpful, you know, going back to the, you know, your comment at the beginning that, that you know, uh, sexuality and sex education is more pornography, right? And the students get it that it's not real, but they don't have anything else, really. And so it's you have to kind of unlearn some of that, right? Because it has to be just altogether frightening, I will suggest, to especially... Well, let's just say that information is quite available to children, young children even. I can just only imagine just how how bizarre it must seem to them. Um, well, exactly. For, that's, one of the things that we talked about and one of the ways to do what you're talking about is 
is what's often called pornography literacy. So instead of avoiding pornography or just uh, or, or just condemning it, you actually say to kids, look, he, we know you're going to look at this stuff. Here's what to think about when you're looking at it. Here's how to understand how it's made. Here's how to understand how you know what's real and what's not. Here's how to interpret what you see the same way you would do with any kind of literature or any kind of film. So rather than avoid the whole idea, you actually teach people to deal with it. And there's there's great research on this that's out there uh, and people have practiced doing it. Another way of normalizing the conversation, I suppose. Exactly. Yes. So much of this conversation, much of your, it seems that your seminar was focused on, uh, well, consent generally, sexuality generally, uh, connecting generally, but largely among students. And then we come to this other matter, and this also relates to teaching yoga, which is an interest of many of my listeners as well as you as yoga teachers. Um, there's the student-teacher relationship. Um, I'm fascinated by the writing of this uh, British philosopher, uh, Amya Srivasan. Her book is The Right of Sex, and the subtitle, The Right to Sex, and the subtitle is Feminism in the 21st Century. Uh, there's a chapter in there specifically on student-teacher relationships, and in particular in the academic institution environment that she's been in and that she's in, and most, I will suggest, thought about. She, I don't, I, I, there's no reference in there to, let's just say, yoga classes. But she certainly discusses a variety of things that arise in yoga classes. But before we get necessarily, let's just say, there, which I would like to go there, um, about generally student-teacher interaction, uh, she is very much highlighting um, a number of things that occur in academic institutions and other places where there's, let's just suggest something, not necessarily a power imbalance, although that is often the case, uh, very much like, let's just say, the professor is going to give you a grade. Yeah, and learning is seductive. Um, yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's such a complicated uh, coming at it from many sides um, issue. And I would say, just to kind of add on another layer, um, and happy to turn to thinking about the yoga studio, too, Students come now, not even, so, I mean, I've never been, I don't think anybody's ever looked up to me or put me on a pedestal. I'd be curious to see what that felt like. But students come with this idea, especially at a uh, small liberal arts college, uh, you know, that, that costs, you know, education is very expensive. And so there's a little bit more of I'm the customer and you are, you know, providing a service for me. And that also kind of shifts the dynamic a little bit. And I, I think we've, um, seen that I, evidence of that for a while. How so? Uh, well, I think we've even had a student in class say to us, you know, that this is, a, you know, college is expensive and I'm paying a lot of money for this education. And so they look to us to provide them, you know, that we sort of owe them a certain, you know. Yeah, don't let the other students get in the way of that process, for example. Yeah, um, so it's it's complicated. I, I just want to also add that I, I think that, I, Jennifer and I have not talked about this, we'll see what she says, but um, for me, I think the real problem is denial. So when you think about the yoga teaching situation, and I'm not a hugely experienced yoga teacher, but I've, I've been in a bunch of classes and taught some, and you know, what, what you, and they're in, in, in my experience in the new agey kind of world is it's very easy to get into this sort of spiritual idealization. Oh, and we, we meet each other on these deep levels and this, that, the other thing. And some of which is, of course, real, but it, you know, let's not pretend that we're not 
imperfect, flawed people just trying to make it through. So let's not pretend, for example, that when I teach a class, you know, oh, sexuality is not an issue. I don't have to worry about that stuff because I've just, you know, put it in a box. No, we, that's what I think about the thing about it's, 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 it's those of us who think we're okay are, can really be the problem. So I've not thought deeply on this, but in a yoga class, yeah, I mean, I know for myself as a kind of male identified person, I'm going to be very careful around students of all kinds because I don't, you know, unless I know them really well and, unless, you know, and, and you know, Mark has taught us this in the teacher trainings too, but, you know, that is a space where there is a lot of vulnerability. There's a lot of, whether you accept it or not, there's a lot of sensuality and sexuality in the air often. And it's very difficult to know what anybody else is thinking, feeling, experiencing. So you really have to be ultra careful and very sensitive and attuned to your own uh, um, sense of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, and that goes back even to, you know, we were talking about in the academic world, kind of know, you know, being really awake and alert to, you know, your motivations. What, you know, what is behind this? Why, why am I doing this? Or <laughs> what, and so I think in the, in the, um, in the yoga room, so to speak, uh, it's particularly an issue because there's a, a, a an extra level of vulnerability and when the students step on the mat and we don't know their stories, we don't know um, mostly. And, you know, when we spend a lot of time as one of uh, our yoga, another of our yoga teachers, favorite yoga teachers have said, Mulabanda, you know, lifting the pelvic floor, right? Working that energy center. And so to kind of deny all of that all of the time, not that you need to cultivate it <laughs> in the sense of, you know, cultivating, you know, desire in the, um, on the mat, but just having an awareness of where your body is and, and um, how you're using it. Seems that that yoga is an invitation to a deeper intimacy, first and foremost, with oneself. That that is, in some ways, this as is learning in in university, that is, or in grade school for that matter. That we're it's all an invitation into a deeper understanding, and that understanding is well, it's occurring within your brain, within your consciousness, and. And meanwhile, we do have, as you've both noted, in a variety of ways, we have complex lives. We don't know what is the full extent of any of our students' lives, their experiences, their traumas, their vulnerabilities, their issues. We don't know. We might not even know all of our own. That's right. And yeah. teaching and holding the space of a yoga class, ideally, I think we're holding in a way where students feel as safe as can be to come into that intimacy within themselves, to, be, to simply feel safe feeling that it can be scary simply to breathe deeply because as we breathe more deeply, we feel more deeply. And that in itself can be scary. It can also be transformational in beautiful, affirmative, empowering kinds of ways. Um, the idea of awakening to our motivations, I love this. And it, 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 it's, it's an ongoing process. It's an iterative process. As we experience it, we do it. And we explore it and we go further and further with it. How as teachers we hold that space, and I'm with you, I think that yoga classes are can be quite filled with qualities of, of, of 
sensuality and sexuality. There's an energy that pulsates often through the room. People are sensuous and sexual beings, after all, however much they might be in denial about that, owing to whatever reasons, trauma, religious edict, or whatever, ideological perspectives that are out there in the world, whatever it happens to be, these energies are there in the room. There's also, I think, tremendous transference that can occur in, in a yoga environment. Does it necessarily? No. Depends on all kinds of things, including, let's just call it the vibe, including the vibe, if you will, of the teacher. Um, I want to go a little bit further with this, and that is... Well, can I just interrupt? It, one thing, yes, just to say one thing is that, please. as is the case in psychotherapy, for me, there's no substitute for having somebody else come in and watch what you're doing. You know, uh, there, I remember somebody, a quote, I forget who it was from, it said, you know, only only you would, you know, take 30 years of mistakes and call it rich clinical experience. You know, it's like people, psychotherapists often, and then various forms of healers and yoga teachers, go. they get their training and then they go off and they do their thing and they continue to do their thing without anybody watching them and coming back in and saying, wow, have you, have you reflected? Did you see what... You know, I think it's just really important to be, to, even if it's peer supervision, just have somebody else in there periodically. And so the yoga teacher who's been so experienced and been out there for 15 years is every bit as in need of someone coming in every once in a while as somebody who just started. Indeed, I'm with you. I think you know, most psychotherapy occurs in a one-on-one -on -one environment. There are, of course, occasionally group environments, but it's usually one psychotherapist with the group. Uh, very rarely are there two psychotherapists facilitating a group. Those are, tend to be in more specialized environments. And also it's pretty rare. I think it's a very special thing that the two of you have, let's just say, co-taught, co-facilitated. I think there's something very profound that happens there. I'll suggest that 99% of yoga classes are taught by a single teacher. And the only observers there are, for the most part, well, the students in the class. Sometimes, of course, classes are private, one-on-one, -on -one, no observer there. That's a whole different dynamic course. Um, I, one of the things I've enjoyed as part of doing teacher trainings over the years is uh, when I've had public yoga studios, many of the last, much of the last 20 years, um, is almost always having observers in my classes as a part of the requirement of teacher training. I have them sit and take notes and observe the classes. And some of my greatest insights as a teacher have come from the critiques I've received from those participants in my training, sitting back, taking prodigious notes uh, about everything they observe in that class from, well, everything that they observe, my voice, what I'm doing, the interactions, the students themselves, what they see and all of that. I think it's really, uh, just really full with potential. Coming back a little bit, I wanna talk, just kind of connect a little bit to, to matters of touch and interaction and vulnerability in a yoga room. And that's to say, when I wrote the book on yoga adjustments, I don't like that title at all, but the idea about how, you know, we have these basic tools of guiding people in a class, and one of them is our voice. It's we might feel the narrative overlay, the guidance, that you, the explanations, the instructions or whatnot, the visual demonstrations that we might, that we might give. They don't work so well in the, among those who cannot see, and I do encourage all teachers to practice teaching in front of a, uh, you know, go to the local Braille Institute and volunteer to teach. It's very different. They don't care if you're what you're wearing, for, for example, your fashion is irrelevant. Um, and then there's there's also um, the tactile guidance, what we might call hands-on adjustments or assisting. And in certain styles of yoga, altogether, just you don't do it. You just or it just doesn't happen, or where it does happen, the teacher doesn't really have a clue much about how to go about it, not just technically, but so ethically, because, well, they've never engaged in a conversation about it because it's not part of their style or lineage. Um, 
there are other styles of yoga in which touch is is everywhere, uh, and it is considered to be one of the primary uh, mediums through which the practice itself is transmitted. Uh, we see this the sort of two ends of the yoga continuum. One would be in certain aspects of yoga therapy, where the idea of therapeutic touch is considered to be an integral element of the healing process. Phoenix Rising is a particular brand of yoga therapy, which 30 years ago made therapeutic touch a fundamental part of their work. Now, I will also highlight in this that uh, David Emerson and Elizabeth Hopper's book, Hopper's book uh, from 15 years ago or so on trauma-sensitive yoga says, do not do that, uh, let's just suggest. And I'll recommend reading Brendan Abrams' book, uh, Teaching Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, for getting some further insight into that question with respect to their, uh, with, with tr- people with trauma, which could be, well, all of us on certain levels. Um, then we go, let's just say, to, let's just say, Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga uh, and Iyengar Yoga, Krishnamacharya's heart of Krishnamacharya yoga, where hands-on touch and guidance is considered to be a fundamental means of transmission. And in my experience, in the first 20 years of practice, from let's just say 1991 to around 2010 or the mid to, mid-aughts, when I was taking active classes with lots of other teachers in their workshops and all, um, I was never asked if it was okay to, for the teacher to not just touch me, but to sometimes almost sort of pounce on me with tremendous physical force to reposition my body, to feel that they had the license, the, the consent, if you will, to touch me in any which way they wish, pushing me and pulling me and contorting me in the various ways that they might. In Ashtanga Vinyasa, Meister style classes, and Iyengar classes and workshops across the world. So this then gets transmitted through the culture, not necessarily through instruction, but through the culture as, well, that's the way that it is. And so then we come into a world of modern, well, to say today's yoga, where many teachers walk through a room with a sense of entire sort of license that they can touch as they wish, when they wish, how they wish, where they wish, perhaps only limited by the laws of the state in which they're practicing relative to matters of sexual battery. So I'm going to go a little bit further with this. Into this, in the in the late 90s, Yoga Journal magazine ran a couple of articles about the question of hands-on adjustments. Basically, is it okay? Is it good? Or you know, how might you go about it? And there was a in, in one there was a there was some discussion about how you might ask permission. This is actually mid 2000s Yoga Journal magazine. And what we find is in one of these discussions, it was, okay, here are the basic ways. Beginning of class, ask your students to raise their hand if they're open to having hands-on adjustments. I'll suggest that that is fundamentally problematic for a couple of reasons. One is you're announcing to the world what you want. Um, It's not clear whether you have the opportunity to change your mind halfway through the class because of your change in mood, something that's hurting in your low back that you want to really take care of, uh, or you just don't like the vibe of the teacher at that point, or whatever reason, you changed your mind. It doesn't matter what reason, you changed your mind. But you already raised your hand to say, well, yes or no, which you also did. I will suggest that when this occurs in large classes, especially, typically everyone's hand goes up, it would seem. But there you are really not wanting to be touched, at least not that day or in that moment or by that teacher or whatever it is. And there's just significant peer pressure. And it doesn't help to flip the question and say, please raise your hand if you don't want to be touched, because now no one's hand goes up. And you really want to raise your hand, but, well, you don't. Okay, so that, I'll suggest, problematic. Next is the suggestion that 
you have cards that you hand out. So just I would come back to the question of cards. And one side is green and one side is red. And you simply place that card on your yoga mat. And now it's, a, it's, it's entirely abundantly evident what you want. And let's just say that you, well, except that now you're once again needing to advertise what you want. One idea would be, well, one issue with that, beyond that would be, what if you change your mind in the midst of an asana because you're sensing something in your experience of it where you want to either have some support or not have that support. You're in wheel pose, urdhva dhanurasana, upward bow. You can't necessarily reach your hand over to the other end of your mat where your card is and flip it over, or you're in a deep forward fold and the card's at the other end of your mat and you don't want to be touched right now. So I suggest it's simply problematic. I'll suggest don't use the cards, the cute little stones and whatnot that are in the marketplace of yoga now. Rather, have conversations with your student. So I, in my book, in my in every way that I do when I teach, suggest where you are giving hands-on adjustments, ask permission to touch. As a fundamental principle, always ask permission to touch. And people say, well, what about that student who's been with you for 20 years? I'm like, I ask them permission to touch. Why? Because I don't know their mood today. I don't know their condition in their body this moment. They, and just as a matter of basic respect, I want to ask them permission. And it's not just the yes is yes, no is no, but going beyond that to stay attuned, to listen to them amidst whatever adjustments one is giving to be checking in. How does this feel? Is this okay? Or invoking, from, watching, sensing the breath, sensing anything that might signal this isn't so comfortable or at least not the right adjustment to be giving, whatever it is. And to use that as a way to, well, I want to suggest normalize the conversation about touch in a yoga class just at this level before we get to any other matters of this to say transference projection and all. And by the way, on that, I'm just with you very much, uh, both of you, this idea that um, as yoga teachers, we should be teaching yoga. And if you have the sense that someone in your class is someone that you might think that there is something else going on with, I'll suggest that that you need to really put either put that in check in some way or they're no longer your student. You need to make a decision about your relationship with people in your classes and not to be trying to have a dance of I'm your yoga teacher, but I'm also uh, looking to be dating you or something like that. I think that is inherently problematic. And even where we see it's worked out in a certain way where people ended up, you know, whatever, getting married to someone who was their student. For the most part, if one is shopping in their yoga classes for dates, it's it leads almost invariably to problems both for that person as well as for the teacher. I think it's it's an inherently problematic area. Think about this more. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think the principles that you introduced uh, in the teacher training and in and in your um, book on adjustments. Um, you know, for me are spot on in terms of always asking every single time. And as you said, and as Josh was referring to this, that, um, and that we learned in the class with our students that it's very hard for folks to say no, um, generally, especially women. And as we know, women populate the major, you know, the largest percentage of our, of our students on the yoga mat. Um, uh, and also they don't always know what they're consenting to. And so uh, it is, it's, it's really tricky terrain, but one of the benefits of having an ongoing, as you say, those ongoing conversations with um, the students who show up uh, on the mat is that they can hopefully develop 
their own sense of their understanding of their body, right? I mean, it is all about that, you know, that practice of awareness for the teacher to be aware of why, what they're doing, why they're doing it, and being in tune a little bit with uh, the person with whom they've just entered their energy field or whatever. Um, and just for me, I know that, you know, I, I know when I'm getting a little sloppy, you know, when it's a student that I've worked with a lot and who says yes every time or who expresses gratitude after a class saying, hey, that was really helpful. That really made sense to me. Um, even so that are those are those moments uh, where I notice I get a little sloppy about asking. I may ask, but maybe I ask as the hands are going on or, you know, and so um, so it's always for me this kind of ongoing learning for myself um, and, and again, it's just kind of a two-way with the, the student um, on the mat. I don't know if any of that made sense. I'm with you. Um, and I think that, I, in saying that I'm with you, I think for, in, for many, the, the first reaction to such an idea is that it introduces an awkwardness in the interaction. Like, what happened to good old spontaneity, some might, su- might, might suggest? Pure spontaneity and not being so circumspect and cautious in everything that we do that we're on such eggshells. But the other side of this is how so many people have not only been made to feel extremely uncomfortable, but have then been inhibited in their own inner attunement and their own learning and their own development and their own sense of safety, of comfort, of being able to be in a practice that is a profoundly emotional practice and a profoundly physical practice. And so I'm with you. I And I think one of a for me, certainly, the challenges, the opportunities at the same time is how best to convey this idea to others who are on a teaching path and how we might also best bring it more into yoga culture where students have sort of this becomes more of a, of a normative expectation. In a class, this is, this is, this is what one might naturally expect and experience in a class in their interaction with teachers and assistants in a class. Well, if I can loop back around to earlier in our conversation when we we were talking about sexuality and sensuality and that same idea of consent and their role there and, and where does spontaneity fit into that. And this is a conversation we often had with our students in the classroom, which is that if you're always asking for consent or, um, enthusiastic yes or whatever that that somehow feels like there's a spontaneity that gets lost and that's where the excitement is in the spontaneity and some of the things that we tried to explore which is this idea that you know all of this idea about spontaneity is something is a is partially cultural right and that there's a way in which um you know not to say that it always looks the same the the enthusiastic yes doesn't even have to be verbal, right? There are a lot of different ways to uh, signal consent, um, but that can be also eroticized. And so maybe also on the yoga mat that it that um, yeah, I can totally understand and feel the way in which that can be awkward or slow things down or uh, c- create some. Um, get the student, you know, into their head as opposed to into their body. And on the other hand, maybe there's a way that that kind of more, um, 
I don't know, informed, uh, you know, desire to say, yeah, I'd really like to go deeper in this pose um, can also be, if not spontaneous, but as, but as transformative, right? Because they are, there's more intention behind it, the intentionality, and that might bring a, a deeper transformation, a deeper transformative practice. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, I can feel the temptation, like, okay, I've got 60 minutes for this class or 75 minutes or an hour and a half, whatever. I need to kind of cram as much yoga in as possible. Well, Maybe not. You know, maybe there's no reason we couldn't take 30 seconds or a minute or several minutes at the beginning to say, okay, here, just so you know, here's what hands-on adjustments are about or hands-on cues are about in yoga. Uh, Or here's how they can be or here's how they will be here. This is the kinds of things you might expect or the kinds of things you might want. It's not about, for example, a, a teacher could say, you know, it's not about me coming over and correcting you and getting your body in the right, the way you should do it so that it looks like the stick figure on the wall and say, you know, there might be a, 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 a kind of an extension that you might feel an openness. And, and here's how I would tend to do that with the, you know, the, and you might even, a teacher could even demonstrate with their hands on somebody or in the air and saying, these are the kinds of things. I mean, even, even 30 seconds of that at the beginning of a class might help the students have that kind of the awareness that Jennifer's talking about so that then they can make an informed a decision when, or they can even just raise, a, raise their hand, could you come over and adjust me? Now, I know if you've got 40 people in a class having an extended discussion with each student while you're trying to do this, it's going to be complicated. But but bringing that awareness, I, I think, is is a very useful, might be a very useful use of uh, time. It's interesting. When I travel and teach, and thus I'm often with a group of students who for the most part, I'm new to, they are new to me. I often take a few minutes, sometimes five, 10 minutes at the beginning of a class, uh, of a class class, um, to talk about, to say, kind of my theory of teaching or the pedagogical stance, or um, it, it, that is to say a few things about what I think are some of the important qualities of a yoga practice. And it can be things like the importance of breath and the various aspects, essential elements, let's say, of asana and pranayama, but also to talk a little bit about doing the practice and the teacher-student relationship in it. And to even suggest in, say, explicitly, as a part of my teaching, I often offer hands-on uh, contact and hands-on assistance, and here is why. I, I would love to see that happen somewhat routinely, if not routinely, in every class, anywhere, rather than the tendency, which I think many of us have in teaching yoga to from the beginning to end it's sort of a theatrical production or it's a you know it's a sacred ritual and from the very beginning you would never sort of you know one might sort of pollute it with such you know meta matters conversations about you know the how of the how but but rather just you just get right into it the, you know the the chimes are are, are rung you, you chant the sound of om and you're off and flowing and there you go and there's never the opportunity for saying well what's really going on here in terms of our interaction and energies in the room and all of this? I want to, I want to wind back a little bit to something that you said also there, uh, Jennifer, about just how, how energy becomes eroticized. Now, and and, and just, just to focus on this is for a moment where how in many learning relationships, um, there's an, there's kind of an adoration that occurs that, that's directed often from, a student towards a teacher, putting them on a pedestal, a transference and rejection, okay, discussed earlier in this episode a bit, but where, you know, let's just, I would like to say, I'd like to assume that 
that even where a student is expressing some expression of desire towards a teacher, which a teacher might tend to eroticize, and often I will suggest many teachers do tend to eroticize that expression, of, that student's expression of desire, that the deeper desire that's there, I suspect, is the desire to learn, the desire to develop their practice, the desire to learn about their own life. It's not, even if they might have some sexualized or eroticized desire in that moment towards a teacher, that most often the desires that a student is having, and I just will say, want to sort of assume this, that it's the desire to learn more and that it's absolutely uh, not ethical for the, the teacher to take that and in any way respond to it in a way that does eroticize it, that does sexualize it, that then whether or not it is it, it is sexualized or perhaps even more so if it is in some ways expressed as, as some form of eroticized uh, desire to, to, to turn that back into an opportunity for de-erotic, of de-eroticizing it and making it about the practice of learning about oneself, improving one's life, exploring one's own emotional tendencies and nature in relationship with other people. Um, yeah, that's a that's a, a, a complicated uh, situation question. Um, certainly that impulse uh, to de-eroticize is a strong one. And I'm thinking about some of the folks that we've talked to when we were working in our consent, in the consent class who work in, and I will use this term that some people, it grates on them, but it is the term that's used in cuddle puddles. So he's a professional cuddler basically. And he was talking to cuddler. Yes. yes, So, yeah. So people having non-sexual touch, right. And uh, so much of the time, um, especially when you're talking about, you know, a heteronormative situation, male and female that men, uh, I think women feel women identified people feel that um, touches from men is always associated somehow sexually. And, uh, and that so and so he that he offered these services where people could have touch without being sexual and the conversation uh, about we'll say a man gets aroused during that how do you deal with that so instead of sort of desexualizing it just kind of saying hey isn't that great that you can be aroused and you know and just kind of reminding us that this is that's not what this is about, but not to shame that arousal, right? And so I don't know, that, that's the kind of thing that came to me, which is not to say that, you know, students are aroused on the mat, but, um, but just to say that, to kind of honor that there, that maybe not erotic, maybe not eroticization, but pleasure, right? That we get pleasure from various kinds of activities, and that that can be kind of on a continuum of sexual to, you know, boy, I really love ice cream. Not that ice cream can't be <laughs> sexual as well, I suppose, but um, that that it's, na- you know, it's natural and to have sorts of um, feelings like that. 
but not acting on them. I very much appreciate you taking some time and reflecting on all of these kinds of questions. I appreciate that the, the two of you have also learned a lot with each other, through each other, as you've held that, those spaces for others. Thanks so much, Mark. A real pleasure. We appreciate, appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. Please see the show notes for links and resources from today's show, as well as links to our sponsors of this episode. If you're enjoying or learning from the Yoga Room podcast, please tell your friends and others who might be interested. You can also subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you never miss anything. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review the show to support us in sharing healthy practices and engaging ideas from around the world. And again, thank you for joining us today. 